Welcome to the Birmingham Lit Fest Presents podcast series. I'm Kit Duval and I've worked with the festival director Chantal Edwards as guest curator of this year's podcast series. Each Thursday, across the next few months, we'll be releasing new episodes of the podcast, including wonderful discussions about writing, poetry, big ideas and social issues. Today's episode is brought to you by the Read On Project, a scheme supported by the European Union's Creative Europe Fund. The Read On Project gets young people reading, writing and interviewing authors, both in their own country and across Europe. In this week's podcast, two of our young presenters, Amy Webb and Tanita Patel, interviewed best-selling author Louise O'Neill about her latest book, After the Silence discussing the cultural preoccupation with true crime and stories about young women, feminism and the urgency of the climate crisis. Welcome to the Birmingham Literature Festival 2020 and to our podcast with the writer Louise O'Neill. My name is Amy and I'm part of a project called Young Presenters. I'm from the city of Birmingham in England and I'm 16 years old. In September, I am due to start at University College Birmingham studying health and social care. And my name is Tanita and I am also part of the Young Presenters Project. I am 16 years old from Wolverhampton and about to start sixth form in September to study psychology, RS and English literature. Over the last three years, Young Presenters have trained young people to run events at the Birmingham Literature Festival. The project is part of Read On, a scheme supported by the European Union's Creative Europe Fund. This year's Birmingham Literature Festival is being run online and we are so pleased to be here to interview the writer, Louise O'Neill. Louise, welcome to the Birmingham Literature Festival. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Louise, we have quite a few questions for you, but before we start, could you please tell us a bit about yourself and your writing? Yeah, well, I'm from Ireland. Um, I'm from a small town called Clonakilty in West Cork, which is in the south of Ireland. And I have been writing for... I'm trying to think how many years now. I think it's seven years. Um, so my first novel was called Only Ever Yours, and that was published in 2014. Um, and that's a dystopian novel uh, set in a world in which women are no longer able to have daughters. Um, so they can have sons, but their bodies have sort of naturally evolved to reject a female fetus in the womb. So faced with the extinction of the human race, um, a decision is made to create these schools where girls are bred for their beauty and then trained to be subservient to men. Um, my second novel came out in 2015 and that was called Asking For It. And that was about a young woman called Emma Donovan, um, who is the victim of a brutal um, sexual assault. My third novel was for adults, so we probably won't be talking about that here. Um, but my fourth book um, was a feminist retelling of The Little Mermaid for Young Adults, which was called The Surface Breaks. And actually, my fifth novel is due to be published next week. Thank you, Louise. That's really interesting. However, our first question isn't actually about your writing. We would both like to know, what have you been up to in lockdown? Oh, God. Um, that is a very good question. And I really wish that I could tell you that I, you know, was emerging from lockdown, clutching a piece of art in my hands. But I am not. Um, I, I think when Taylor Swift came and said that she had written and recorded an album during lockdown, I felt immensely guilty and uh, just a great deal of shame about my lack of productivity. But uh, I think, to be honest, when when it was called, when everything happened at the beginning, 
I was really just scrambling. Um, I felt incredibly anxious. I think it was difficult not to pick up on the anxiety and the fear that was just so like the atmosphere was thick with it really. Um, so for the first month, I think I just felt completely paralyzed. I was unable to to write. I was unable to read. Um, I couldn't even watch Netflix. Um, so I think it took me a little bit of time to come out of that fog in a way and just try and adjust and try and kind of, and I hate using the term the new normal, but I was trying to adjust to this new way of living and, and figure out a way of doing it that felt, I don't know, comfortable, I suppose, um, for me. Um, so that's kind of been what I've been doing with my lockdown is just trying to adjust to the madness. Definitely, I agree with you there. A lot of people have struggled in similar ways and we've got to try and accept the new normal. As you mentioned earlier, you have a new book just published called After the Silence. Could you mm. please introduce the book for people who have not read it? Yeah, of course. It's going to be published on September 3rd, so it's only a week out. And it is set on a an island off the coast of West Cork called Inishroon. And an incredibly glamorous, wealthy family called the Kinsellas have set up um, a world-renowned artist retreat centre on the island. And the youngest Kinsella son, Henry, has married a local woman called Keelan. And it's at Keelan's 36th birthday party that this violent storm engulfs the island. You know, the power um, goes out and it's completely cut off from the mainland. And the next morning, the body of a young girl is found. No one can get on the island. No one can get off the island. So it has to have been someone on in shroom who did this. And then 10 years later, the murder of the beautiful Nessa Crowley still haunts the Irish people. And so a team of documentary makers have arrived onto the island to find out exactly what happened on In the Shroom that night. So that's it, after the silence in a, in a little nutshell. Thank you for that great explanation. Whilst reading it, I thought it was a really powerful book. Are there any experiences or stories that have influenced your writing of this book? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's interesting. I suppose for me, one of the primary things was that so many of my friends were becoming really obsessed with true crime. Um, you know, I suppose since Serial, the podcast uh, that investigated the murder of a, a Korean American teenager was released in 2014. I think there has just been a spate of documentaries and podcasts that, you know, are investigating uh, true crime. And I, I suppose I found it really interesting because so many of the victims of these crimes are also women, but the audience for this genre seems to be primarily women. So I think I was really interested in that. And then there was a podcast that I was really fascinated by, which was called the West Cork podcast. And it was, I suppose the reason why it had particular resonance for me is because I'm, I'm from West Cork. Um, and it was about the murder of a French woman called Sophie Toscan de Plantier, um, in 1996. When you grow up, uh, in an area, you know, in the countryside where, you know, we didn't even lock our front doors, you know, the, the crime was just non-existent, um, at that time in the nineties. So for something like this to happen was just so, so terrifying um and i think when i was listening to um the podcast and and so much of it um the the primary suspect who's never been charged by the way but um has i think really carried this with him um he was an englishman and i suppose i was really interested as well in that kind of very uneasy tension that often 
results between English and Irish people um, because of so many years of oppression and colonial rule. Um, and I suppose, you know, Ireland has only had its freedom for 100 years. And so there was just a lot of things that I thought, God, this is so interesting. And I really wanted to to look at all of that. And, you know, the book also deals with uh, coercive control, which is, I suppose, a form of domestic abuse that is not as commonly understood um, as physical abuse. Um, you know, coercive control is when you when someone tries to manipulate their partner you know whether that's through financial means or sexual means or emotional manipulation and i wanted to i suppose use this book as a way of looking at this subject um and with so many of my novels what i'm always saying is that i'm trying to start a conversation particularly about topics maybe that aren't um as commonly discussed or looked at um, in our society um, and I suppose for after the silence this felt like a really important um, relevant issue that I wanted to address. That's really interesting and it's interesting to hear the history of Ireland. There are a lot of strong characters in this book which do you relate to the most? You know it's interesting I think this is my fifth novel um, and I think out of, with After the Silence this is probably the one where I don't think I relate to any of the characters and I think you know and, and the, how I'll explain that is that with the three um, novels for young adults that I've written Only Ever Yours, Asking For It and The Surface Breaks those were all with teenage protagonists um, and, you know, they were dealing with issues like body image and eating disorders and sexual violence and slut shaming and sexuality and, you know, first love and all of those things. And I suppose I, you know, I have been a teenage girl. I have, have experienced so many of those issues. So while those characters weren't based on me, I could really empathize with their experience. And I suppose I channeled quite a lot of maybe my own pain or, you know, my own trauma or my own difficulties into those characters. Whereas I think with After the Silence, this is the first book that I've written with a protagonist who is older than me. Um, Keelan is uh, 46 uh, in most of the novel and then in the flashback, she's 36. Um, so I think it was actually really interesting to, like as a, as a creative exercise for me as a writer, to write a book with a main character that I really didn't feel I suppose that she was an echo of me or that I, or that I was kind of channeling something of my own through her, that she was just a creation. And I actually really enjoyed it. And I suppose as well, you know, you can't, I suppose as a writer, you know, you can't keep writing the same sorts of books over and over again. And because of that, there's going to come a time where you have to start writing stories and, and, and characters that are completely outside of your of your own of your own experience and I think after the silence definitely was that for me. As you've just briefly mentioned and having heard your short descriptions on some of your other books and even reading some myself it seems like this book is quite different to other novels and I'm wondering mm. what made you decide to write this sort of psychological thriller? I mean I will say that you know all of my other books have actually been def different genres you know only ever yours was a dystopian novel asking for it and almost love were contemporary novels and the surface breaks was a fantasy novel um so i'm not necessarily defined by genre um i tend to have the idea for a book and then try and figure out what the best way to tell that story is 
And I think very early on with After the Silence, it became very clear to me that this was going to be a psychological thriller. Just, you know, it's about secrets and the lies that we tell ourselves and other people in order to survive. And um, so I, I knew it was going to be, um, as I said, a thriller. And I suppose when you look at my novels, no matter what the genre is there is a thread that connects all of them um and i suppose that thread is if you want to call it feminist if you want to call it you know just being a woman in the world navigating the world in a female body and how that manifests itself i think that's the thread that kind of connects all of the novels but i will say that with after the silence even though it definitely was different and it was a it's a departure for me it felt like a really good fit for me as an author um and i you know i really enjoyed it i really enjoyed looking at how to make it as compelling as possible and pacing is really important in a psychological thriller and just I suppose how to make it as gripping as I as I possibly could so I really enjoyed that creative challenge. In After the Silence and Asking for It the media seems like a central part of the story why do you think the media is drawn to stories about young women? Such a great question you know that was something I suppose I was really and I, and I agree with you that it's in both novels. I mean, I think I was maybe trying to grapple with it even more in After the Silence because, you know, in in the last few years, I think, and I'm sure you feel the same way and I feel like, you know, your friends probably feel the same way. I think there has been just this awakening of consciousness um, around inequality in the world, particularly pertaining to race, to sexuality, to gender, to ethnicity, to religion. And I suppose for me, you know, I am a white Irish woman who grew up in a very monocultural society um, and who didn't really have to think about any of these things because everyone around me looked like me. And I think that, you know, I moved to New York um, in 2010 and I suppose that was the first time where I was really beginning to think about these these subjects. and. I suppose we've seen it time and time again, you know, that when it's the murder or the rape or the abduction of a white woman or a white child or a white girl, that that is given a great deal of attention in the media. Whereas if it is a black woman or a a woman of color or, you know, a child of color, that it just isn't afforded the same sort of importance. And I think that's so sad and really telling of of the the fractures um in our society and i suppose like a case like the madeleine mccann case would be a really good example of that and you know it's not that i begrudge her family that because it's every parent's worst nightmare but you know i suppose you have to think well what about the you know the the black girls who were taken and why the media not reporting on that why are we, you know, why is there not money still being poured into that fund? And I suppose when I started to think about these topics, I really wanted to look at, I suppose, the way in which the media sometimes can, and, and, and certain facets, you know, my, my partner is a journalist, and I think that, like, journalism is a really important profession. And I think that the freedom of the press is a, an important thing to uphold. And I'm not criticizing all facets of the of the media. I it's more tabloid culture and just the kind of fetishization almost of beautiful women. Um, and then when beautiful women go missing or when beautiful, you know, when they're murdered, just the way in which that is 
portrayed in the media can often be quite unsettling. Um, you know, there's this line where they're, um, the two documentary makers are speaking to a police officer and, you know, he says, you know, it's it's interesting who we decide, which women or which girls we decide we're going to care about. And, and he says, you know, it helps if they're pretty. And I just think there's something really broken about that, I suppose. That's really insightful and quite saddening to know that society has become this way. You've already touched mm. on this quite a bit before, but as the victim, Nessa Crowley, is viewed as beautiful by the media and the characters, do you think the beauty, her beauty affects the way the characters and, me, and media feel and handle her death? Mm, yeah, absolutely. And I suppose particularly because the way in which Nessa, who is this very beautiful you know, young woman, the way in which she is portrayed is so different to the way that Keelan, um, who... It's Henry Kinsler's um, wife. Um, Henry Kinsler is the, the man who's suspected um, of murdering um, Nessa. Uh, the way in which that they are treated by the media, but also the way that they're pitted against each other in this idea that there can only be one woman that is the winner. And, it, you know, that winner will will be judged upon their physical appearance. And I think, you know, we saw it with Jennifer Aniston and, and, and Angelina Jolie when all of that came out with Brad Pitt in 2005. And, I, you know, we've seen it recently with Meghan Markle and Kate Middleton. It's like that we can't allow two women to coexist happily. It's like the media has to create rivalry. It has to pit them against each other and it has to judge them on their physical appearance. And it's really... It's just it's so exhausting um, and it's so harmful to women's mental health. And I think it's especially harmful um, to younger women who are coming of age and who are watching all of this unfold. And I suppose the, the message that they're internalizing as a result of that is, to my mind, you know, a harmful one. Following on from the last question a bit, the murder of Nessa Crowley takes place during a party. And in a, one of your other books, party is also a very important factor and I'm wondering what is it about parties that can be useful for a novelist? Mm, I suppose I mean that's such a good question these are really good questions I I suppose there's especially when there's drink and there's drugs involved people's inhibitions are lowered um, and people will say things and do things that they might not ordinarily do. And I suppose from a narrative point of view, that's always really, really interesting. And it also seems like a good time, I think, for secrets to be revealed and and for people to speak their truth and to, to tell someone what they really think or how they really feel about them. So it kind of feels like there is this slightly explosive energy. And it's actually interesting that you say that because with asking for it, and now I haven't put this together, but now that you've said it, it's just made me think of it, that in asking for it, the heat is really oppressive, you know, that they are having a heat wave the time of that party and they're sweating and they're sweltering and they're kind of waiting for the weather to break because it's too hot. And it's kind of that sense of almost like things are ready to boil over. And then obviously with After the Silence, when the party happens, there's this really violent storm that is just, you know, whipping um, the island. And again, I suppose it's that sense of things being out of control um, and just really overwhelming. So I suppose it's that kind of idea that that the parties are wild, but the weather outside is kind of matching it. 
that that is really interesting to hear and i like the take of parties because it kind of links all the novels together are there any important themes you write about for instance keelan and henry's daughter is very concerned about sustainability is the climate crisis important to you oh i mean i don't think you can be alive today and not be concerned about the climate crisis and if you are i think you're either very optimistic um, or willfully ignorant. It is very frightening. Um, and I think for so many of us, I suppose it was like I was a child, it was the ozone layer, the hole in the ozone layer was sort of the big environmental crisis that everyone was worried about. And there was always this sense of that it will be fine in our lifetime, but that you would take these measures for your children's children. And I suppose what has been very confronting over the last number of years is that the the rate of climate change, the progress of it um, has increased exponentially to a point where, you know, this isn't our children's children. This is, you know, our lifetime. This is my parents' lifetime. And I think that that has been very frightening. Um, and I, I really feel sorry for younger people, you know, like teenagers, like, like the two of you who haven't, you know, have had no hand in this you know you have had no hand in creating this crisis and yet you are the ones who are going to be i suppose left dealing with the consequences and i just think that it is time for radical action with this um and uh, governments you know across the globe they're inefficiency and their just reluctance to move on this issue feels to me much more motivated by political and financial interests rather than what is the you know for the good of this planet and it reminds me of this old proverb i think it was a native american proverb that my dad used to say when we were kids and he'd say when will the white man learn that you can't eat money and i probably completely butchered that now but i think there is something so true about that that this greed this insatiable greed for more for more money for more wealth it's like i'm not sure what these people think they're going to do with all of that wealth when the world is uninhabitable so yeah to put it mildly yes i am very concerned <laughs> you have also supported the black lives matter campaign could you say a bit about why the, this issue is important to you i mean it's important to me because i am a human being and i want to see other human beings being treated with the same respect and decency that i would hope to be treated with i've spoken a little bit about you know the fact that growing up in a in a predominantly white culture and then when i moved to new york it was the first time that i had very close friends who were people of color and it was a, it was very eye opening actually because you know i i thought that a racism couldn't exist in a city like new york because it was such a melting pot and and this kind of i suppose post racial utopia and then to hear from black friends you know about their experiences with the police um and their fear of brutality and i suppose just racial profiling and discrimination that they experienced on on a daily basis was yeah, I mean, the only way I can describe it was it was just an, an awakening of sorts. Um, and then I think that when the Ferguson rising happened in 2014, I mean, that really brought it home because I suppose, and, you know, I think it was Will Smith said that, you know, racism isn't getting any worse. It's just getting filmed. And I think that's actually really important because for white people, if you haven't experienced it, 
when you're being confronted with this irrefutable like evidence of exactly how unfair and unjust and just like oh god just devastating this kind of brutality is like it's you can't unsee it you know you can't look away it's a human rights atrocity and i think that if you're any way of a decent human being then you can't you just can't allow that to continue and i suppose as a as a white person it's very much looking at how my skin color has protected me and how it's benefited me and in ways maybe that i wasn't even aware of and i think also understanding that the dismantling of that is going to take like a lot of work and i think it has to be i mean i know it has to be it has to be white people doing that work and you know being prepared i suppose for that to be uncomfortable and for that to be difficult and maybe to lose out on jobs or to lose out on you know speaking on a panel that you really wanted because they're like no we're having you know let's say two black authors and two white authors and and so i think it's understanding that like that this is necessary and that this has to happen because i think until all of us are equal then none of us are so it is it's something i suppose look i just have i think a lot of people are like this. I'm not saying that, you know, I'm not trying to sort of bake myself up or whatever, but I just think I have like injustice in any shape or form just really burns. Um, and I think that when you see these images or you hear these stories um, or you watch these videos, it's just, it's so horrifying. And I think I, I suppose I just want to try and do my my part in dismantling that and whatever that will be, I suppose. You mentioned in a few of your social media biographies that you were beginning to learn Irish. Um, uh, yeah. How important is the Irish language to you? Well, you know, it's interesting. I I really want to, and I suppose obviously, and after the silence, um, there's quite a bit of Irish um sprinkled throughout it. And one a very close friend of mine, Treylock, um, is a native Irish speaker, so he translated it for me. And I've just always wanted to speak it. My my uncle married a woman who came from the Gwaeltacht. Um, her family spoke Irish, like her mother would be quite a hesitant English speaker like you know she would which would be quite rare nowadays like most people from Gweltox would speak you know English and Irish pretty much interchangeably so they would have been very much you know native Irish speakers and it just felt like this secret language you know that they could talk to each other in and it just sounded so beautiful and obviously I studied it at school and it was in in the same way that I think so many subjects are are taught at school it's how do I learn enough to do well in my exams rather than how do I learn enough so that I can have a decent conversation with people if I go to to Dingle or if I go to Ballyverney or you know any of these um Gweltucht um Irish speaking areas um in the country. And because we've all been staycationing this uh summer um because no one can well most people aren't traveling abroad. Um, I, you know, was down in Dingle and I was um, in Cape Clear, which is an island off the coast of West Cork. And these places are, you know, they would be native Irish speaking areas. And I just keep thinking, God, I really wish I could just, even if I had like a five-year-old, like a grasp of conversational Irish, I just thought it would be really lovely. Um, so I am planning on taking a course this autumn. So the next time you speak to me, hopefully I'll be like half fluent. That, that, that is really amazing and very inspiring and it's nice to be able to speak your home language really. 
throughout the novel there are references to the recent hashtag me too movement would you call yourself a feminist writer and how have you responded to sexism and how you've come across Oh, I mean, I don't think that Keelan, the main character in the book, probably considers herself a feminist, but I am a feminist. I have called myself a feminist since I was 15, and it is a very integral part of who I am and my identity as both a person and a writer. So I would 100% agree that my feminism um, informs uh, my writing um, and I suppose the the issues that I am drawn to that come up again and again in my writing, whether that's body image or violence against women or, you know, or sexual violence um, and eating disorders and the beauty myth and the pressure that's put on young women to be beautiful and sexy and 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 gender politics and relationships you know I suppose it's all of these things that I'm grappling with in my real life that I I think spills over um, into my work as well and when it comes to sexism like in general I just try and call it out and sometimes the way that I call it out has to be done differently. So if it's an older person, you know, let's say if it's an older family relative, I'm obviously going to call it out in maybe a more gentle, explanatory way than if it's in the middle of a radio interview or, you know, or if it's someone who's being really aggressive online or, you know, it, I, I think that the manner in which I deal with that is going to be different depending on the circumstances and the person that's involved. But I think at the end of the day, it's, it's just really important to call out any incidences of sexism or misogyny that you see, whether those are directed towards you or whether they're directed towards someone else. Definitely. I think women have been used to being discriminated against because of their gender and it's important to call things out like that. Many of your books deal with domestic violence and abuse of women in different forms. Why is it important for you to tell these stories? Well, I think it's important to tell these stories because these stories are happening. You know, these stories are real um, and they are they they are a reality for millions, billions um, of women um, across the world on a daily basis. And I suppose I really want to live in a society in which that's not true. You know, I want to live in a world in which it's safe for women and for children um, and, you know, safe from terror and rape and abuse and manipulation and the violence. Um, and I think you know, we all have to do, we all have to play our part. Um, and for me as a writer, my books and what I'm putting out into the world in that way, that is my contribution, I suppose, to this conversation. And we we all have different talents um, and we all have different abilities. So I suppose the way in which someone else contributes to that conversation might look different um, to mine. But this is the way that I, f- that I feel like uh, that I can do that. One of the documentary producers, in After the Silence, Jake, has also suffered as a result of an abusive father. I wonder why did you decide to give him that backstory? I felt like, I suppose, when you're looking at all of the characters in a book, you want to make sure that they all have their own motivations and their own reasons for their their actions. And when I was looking at the two documentary makers, I was like, well, why would they be interested in making this documentary? And one of them I felt like would have Irish heritage that, you know, his family would have been from West Cork and he would have heard about this story from them. And that's why he'd want to do it. And then I think I thought that the other character would have had personal experience of um, abuse and would be using his career as a channel to 
tackle abuse um, to try and I suppose to to look at this subject or to bring it to light. Um, and for me, I suppose that character was going to be Jake. And I also knew that Jake and Keelan were going to have this very strong bond, that that was going to be a part of the story. And I think it made sense to me that they would connect over over something like this. I just wanted to highlight that it is not just the survivors of um, abuse you know, that are impacted by it, you know, whether that's male or female. It's innocent children who are caught in the crossfires as well and who are brought up in a culture of fear um, and silence um, and abuse um, and the long-term impacts that that has on those children is so devastating. Um, so I suppose in the character of Jake, I really wanted to to present that side of the story as well. It's amazing that you're advocating for these kind of issues. In the book, Keelan studied counselling and worked with a domestic violence organisation. Did you have to do a lot of research to write about her experiences with domestic violence in the book? Yes, I did a lot of research. Um, and, you know, I did a lot of research for asking for it as well. But I, I'd had experience of sexual violence myself, so I was able to bring that to it. Whereas I hadn't I had no experience um, of domestic abuse, either personally or, you know, within my immediate family. And I wanted to make sure that I, I suppose, did it justice. And um, so I read so many books um about it um and i also was in close contact with a charity here or um in west cork called the west cork women against violence project so they asked some women who were coming to the center would they be interested in speaking to me and i spoke to i think it was around 10 women some in groups and some individually and just i just asked them to to tell me about their experiences to tell me about how it started and how it escalated um and the impact that it had on them and and it was a very it was a very humbling and harrowing experience to hear those stories to hear what exactly happens behind closed doors for for so many um people and i felt very privileged um to be given that access um, and to be trusted with those stories and I carried them with every word that I wrote and I hope that I did those women justice. That's amazing to hear the work that you had to put into behind the scenes of making this novel. Um, your novel really shows how complex the issue of domestic violence is. Um, Keelan leaves her first husband after he physically assaults her but doesn't seem to realise how controlling and abusive Penny is. Is it difficult for you to write about characters with such Distressing lives. I mean, sometimes it is. I I didn't find. I have to say now, like um, asking for it, which I, again, I think it was probably that asking for it was quite close to me. Um, whereas because I was able to have some sort of emotional distance between me and Keelan, I didn't identify with her as a character. You know, she didn't like she wasn't a part of me. I suppose in a way, it felt easier to write that character and to maintain. Um, some sort of emotional distance um, so that it didn't it, the research was difficult um, and and listening to those stories was difficult um, but the writing of the book itself I, I didn't find it difficult I have to say I mean no more than any book is obviously you know there's there's difficulty involved and 
there's some days where you think, why on earth did I choose this career and why on earth did I begin this book? But no, I think, as I said, the ability to write it um, and then to be able to walk away from it that day and sort of leave it on my desk, you know, to leave it there with my computer. Um, I think that I'm not sure if that's age. I'm not sure if that's because this is my fifth novel. I, I think maybe I've just gotten a little bit better at uh, being able to separate my work and my personal life. That's amazing. And that does contain some great tips for aspiring authors. You have written books for young adults and adult audiences. Do you approach writing differently depending on the audience you are writing for? Hmm. No, not really. Um, Because writing a book is, for me anyway, is the same no matter what age category it's um it's aimed at. I think sometimes I'm not even necessarily thinking about the audience or, you know, or what age the audience is going to be. I'm very much concerned, particularly in that first draft, with what is the story? How am I going to tell it? And what is the best way that I can tell it? So those are the issues, I suppose, that I am focused on. Um, and those are the same, whether it's an, a novel for adults or whether it's a novel for young adults. We know this question gets asked a lot. We would love to know what is next for you? Are you working on something new? I am about to start working on something new um, and which I've sort of been working on just the idea and coming up with the concept. Um, so I'm, I'm re- to be honest, I'm so excited about just starting a new project. I think this year has been so strange um, and unsettling for everybody um, that I think working on something new will be a really great distraction from all of the just chaos um, that's going on and just it's just, I mean, I feel very privileged because obviously, you know, I, I didn't lose my job and I, everyone in my life is is healthy and well. Um, so I don't want to, I suppose, take that for, for granted. Um, but I think even for those of us who have ostensibly been very lucky, you know, this has been a, a trying um, year. Um, so for me, whenever things are difficult or when things prove to feel overwhelming, I think getting back to my desk and getting back to my work has always been the best antidote. Um, so I'm just really excited about starting this new project and just getting it out into the world as soon as possible. It's nice to hear you've got that idea of calm after what we'd call the storm. Can we yeah. finish, Louise, by asking what advice you would give to anyone wanting to become a writer? Did you always mm. want to be a writer? And are there any secrets you can share about writing a novel? Well, no, firstly, I didn't always want to be um, a writer. I wanted to be an actress. But actually, funnily, I think they're quite similar in that it's taking a character and that is very different to you and trying to inhabit them and trying to understand their motivations and why they behave and the way that they the way that they do and bringing that character to life whether that's on stage or on film or on the page and so I suppose I can see the similarities now Um, and I think that for anyone who's listening who wants to be a writer I wish that I could tell you that there's like a secret, um, but I think really the only secret is, is that you just have to sit down and write. And I think that a lot of people become very overwhelmed because they start, they think, oh, I can't write an entire book. And no one can sit down and write an entire book. But what everyone does is they sit down and they write 500 words or they write for an hour. Um, and then they do that three times a week. And then in a year, they have a novel and it's it's honestly it's as easy and as difficult as that um because i think you have to tackle your own self-doubt and the 
criticism um, and that inner voice telling you that you know you can't do this um, because you can do it um, and the thing is is that if you want to write that desire is not going to go away so sit down at your desk turn on your computer and just start thank you very much to everyone who's listened and thank you for louise for joining us we love after the silence we want everyone to read it and please come back to birmingham oh i'd love to come back oh my god once we're able to travel again thank you thank you for listening to this week's episode of the birmingham lit fest presents podcast if you enjoyed this episode we'd love for you to tell us about it leave us a review and a rating find us on instagram twitter and facebook at Beham lit fest And take a look at the rest of this year's digital programme on our website at www.birminghamliteraturefestival.org. You can download our latest podcast episodes every Thursday from all the places you would normally get your podcasts. Until then, happy reading. The Birmingham Lit Fest Presents podcast is curated by Chantal Edwards and produced by 11C and Birmingham Podcast Studios for Writing West Midlands.